1: We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support
0: any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. American prosperity is the bedrock of freedom and security all over the world. An obligation to the heritage of liberty and dignity handed down to us by our forefathers. It's time for the Pro-America Report with Ed Martin on The Answer San Diego.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Hey, great to catch up. I hope everybody has had a good weekend. The Pro America Report, visit proamericareport.com, proamericareport.com. You can check out all of the there, there. Sign up for the uh, emails that come out of that. That's a sub stack. And also head over to com. You get the daily email, the wink, what you need to know. What you need to know every morning, 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific, goes into your inbox, tells you a few key links, a few key uh, uh, places to go, and what one, sometimes two, big thoughts on what you need to know. So The Daily Wink, check it out, phyllischlapwee.com. Go sign up there. All right. um, Today, I want to preview something. I hope you saw that we started talking about the Monroe Doctrine last week, 10 days ago, and it eventually got through, and uh, everybody's talking about it. I mean, they had it on Bannon's War Room. They had it over the weekend. I heard it referenced on Fox, uh, all over the internets. Lots of people paying attention. Very important doctrine, the Monroe Doctrine. Very important history. Very special. So thank you for your part in promoting that. Today, let's begin speaking about something very specific, very specific, um, and that is this. Due process, demand it. Due Process Demanded. Now, you've heard me talk about this quite a bit. There's a book, Due Process Denied, written by uh, Cynthia Hughes. I wrote the introduction to it. Extraordinary history of uh, the treatment of the January 6th prisoners and how badly they've been treated and what's happened. Um, And it's a great little book. Um, I'm very proud of her and proud to be affiliated with that. Um, Excuse me. But Due Process Denied is descriptive, descriptive, meaning this is what we've seen. The laws used in, in strange ways, the juries being uh, hard to understand as impartial, the judges uh, not being able to manage a, a tribunal in a way that's fair, all these kinds of things that are descriptive of what has happened to January 6th, folks. Well, we've pivoted. We've pivoted. And the pivot is this. And I want you to watch. And I want you to pay attention. And I want you to be a part of this. And here's the pivot. Due process demanded. We, the people in this country, have every right to demand due process. We we don't have to sit back and say, huh, that's too bad. That's too bad that we're uh, being denied our due process. That That's not good. That, that's not good. No, we're demanding due process. We're demanding that that as the Fifth Amendment says, we shall not we, no one shall be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law, due process of law. 14th Amendment uses the same 11 words. They call it the due process clause and they argue and then they clearly uh, uh, require an obligation of the states, not just the federal government. The due process, though. So there we get back to due process. What is it? What is it? Don't fall, by the way, for this substantive due process. Substantive due process is a way that the left has tried to take uh, a, a doctrine, due process, and make it into a way to create laws. Substantive due process is, ah, let's see if we can come up with a some ideas on what else we should have in the law substantively that isn't included, that we think should be there. It's just a way to make up law. No. Historically, due process has to do with the interaction of the law with we, the people, and how you have a right to the process, the procedures to be fair and honorable and work. It goes all the way back, by the way, to the Magna Carta. I don't know if you know that history. There is a copy of the Magna Carta, by the way. In fact, I think uh, the Magna Carta is about 13th century. I think maybe it's... um, The copies that exist of the Magna Carta were about 20 years after the original was signed. And those are the earliest versions. So in other words, in that time, you didn't have photocopies. You had to have handmade copies. And this was a handmade copy 15 or 20 years after. And there's only three or four of them. One of them is in Washington, D.C., in the archives uh, there on on, uh, Constitution Avenue. And so the idea was that King John, in the Magna Carta, he says he will act only according to the law, and according to the processes of the law. So that's the starting point. We're going to abide by the law. Okay, that's pretty good. That's uh, that's at the uh, the center of uh, of American life, of course. But we're also going to abide by the processes, the procedure. Now, this is the crown jewel of America. Uh, whenever people say, oh, America's an idea, I don't know what that means. I, don't, I just don't know what that means. I, I understand. It sounds, but it sounds silly to me. America's people. But what is it that knit us together? And the knitting us together, the, the thing that knits us together, the crown jewel. In other countries, they actually have crown jewels that are like, oh, that's the crown jewels of England. The most important, valuable thing who puts the crown on. Ours is the Constitution and the rule of law and the founding values. And those knit us together and make us different than the rest of the world. So that in the rest of the world, they might say, oh, as Justice, the late Justice Scalia said, other nations have a a, uh, constitution, a bill of rights. They just don't abide by them. They got lots of words on paper. In the case of America, our crown jewel, our crown jewel at the very heart of what we're doing is the constitution, the rule of law, and our founding values. And the best way to describe that is to say due process that when you are losing your life, liberty or property, you have to have fair procedures for how that what happens. There has to be a fairness about it. Now, what is that fairness? What are the sets? There is a famous judge, a judge friendly, a federal judge who has written on this subject and he, uh, he wrote about this. His name is Circuit Judge Henry Friendly. He never made to the U.S. Supreme Court. He was at the, i forget which court he was on. Actually, now that I say it out loud, was he? Uh, he was up in—I think he's from Pennsylvania. So he probably was uh, on like the uh, the first or, or, or uh, circuit. I don't know. We'll find out. But um, but the but he was a prominent judge who was well respected, and he was able to articulate in in a very he, so he wrote a, a um he wrote a um an opinion. And he used uh, very, there it is, he was a, a circuit judge, uh, second circuit, sorry, uh, and he was on the court until 1986. Um, and he, he wrote this uh, description that is commonly referred to about elements of due process. And the first one is an unbiased tribunal, unbiased tribunal. Does it look like Donald Trump is in an unbiased tribunal? Does that look possible to you? Not even close. Not even close. The uh, uh, right to know opposing evidence—that's one of the uh, uh, one of the aspects. Does it look like you're getting all the material? Does it look like President Trump is being denied the chance to look at opposing evidence? Of course, of course, it looks like he's being denied that chance. Right to counsel, there, making a record, availability of statements and reasons, public attendance, judicial review. When you go through due process, judge friendly, what you come up with is there's a A a fairness required the jury. So an impartial tribunal, either the judge should be impartial or if it's or. And in addition to the judge, if it's a jury trial, should be a jury that is impartial. That is a a jury that's able to put aside their uh, biases. How's that going to happen in Washington, D.C.? It's not possible. It's not possible. We have a system where the, the law is being applied unevenly to one group. Trump, J6, then to others, Antifa, the others that have rioted. The reality is due process requires a, a fairness of the system, of the processes that is just not happening. It's not happening in this case. And we're watching it be trampled. And here's what really gets me. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Why aren't there more lawyers? Men and women who are called to this profession that is is often called, you know, less a profession and more a vocation, a calling, because you're called in America towards the crown jewels. Constitution, rule of law, founding values. You're one of the protectors. They call you an officer of the court. You have a certain set of, 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 uh, of obligations, duties, duties, better duties, not obligations. And you have these duties that you're supposed to live up to. And where are they? The lawyer, too many lawyers are quiet and you watch these judges, the judge up in New York in the state case. There's no way you can. It doesn't matter that his wife is uh, is a character and, and does all these crazy things and the judge may say, that's not me. I'm not her. Don't judge me by my wife. It doesn't matter. It makes the appearance of, of, of lack of par, impartiality is as bad as impartiality itself. That's the reality. The system has to be preserved. The system is bigger than the individual's. The American legal system is the greatest protection in the world, greatest place of freedom in the world. And it is being gutted by the prosecution, the attacks on Donald Trump, and in particular on what's happening in Washington, D.C., that the swamp is so drunk with power and the Congress and the judiciary and others are so enamored with their own power that they can't see that they have corrupted this system. It's really quite terrifying. And I mean that in that sense of the word. Due process demanded, demanded. That's what we, the people, want. And we deserve it. It's ours. All right, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in the morning. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report, and our next guest. I, I was uh, having a conversation over the weekend, which is a good sign for him about our uh, next guest and his book, because people are interested in this topic. Feels like the word uh, has been uh, a word has been taken from us, uh, and that is colonialism. And his book, up uh, uh, Bruce Gilly is a professor. His book is called The Case for Colonialism, just out about three weeks, uh, and so it's perfect time to talk to him. The Word has obviously popped up all over the place. I mentioned he's a professor, teach, teaches at Portland State University, and is on the National Association of Scholars, that great uh, group. I was going to say they're conservative group, but I think they're just a thoughtful group. But I suppose it's conservative. And I uh, should uh, give a, a, a tip of the hat to New English Review Press, the publisher for the book. So, uh, welcome, uh, Professor Gilly. How are you, sir?
2: I'm very well. Thanks. Good to be here.
1: So first of all, you know, Orwellian thing, um, they try to take words away. Right. So uh, colonialism sort of now uh, it's got a negative connotation more significantly than probably any other time. Are you are you feeling that, seeing that, understanding why that's happening?
2: Yeah, I think when I originally wrote about this, I, I said, uh, it's now the C word. We can't even say <laughs> it out loud. Uh, yeah. and nobody wants to use the C word. It's like the N word, you know, it's like, oh, we, you can't actually say that word, even if it's historically part of history. Um, and yeah, it's crazy because, World history is a history of colonialism. Every single part of the world and every single people and culture was either a colonizer or colonized. That's how the world has always operated until very, very recently. Um, and I'm just looking at the Western colonialism, but somehow... The uh the uh the critical left has decided that because the West got involved in colonialism, that they're going to steal the word from us and turn it into something like the Holocaust or racism or something. And they hope that we can just never use the word again. So I've had to fight against that. And that's what my book does.
1: Well and uh we're talking about again uh the the uh, book which is up everywhere books are sold I, I noticed it I think on Amazon clicking through the case for colonialism uh professor Bruce Gillie and uh it started out by the way as an article that he wrote the case for colonialism I think back 5 or 6 years ago got a huge amount of attention and so he turned it into this uh longer book which is fantastic And and so um doesn't colonialism require and I mean it as a compliment that one believes that uh, some things are better than others in other words not everything is equal uh, that 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 seems to me to be the sort of root of the problem I, I, if i can't say i think you know america's constitution america's ideals america's situation is better than others it it may not mean that it's time to invade them or or we may make decisions in the modern moment to not be colonial but it starts out with believing what you what you are is better than someone else isn't that and that's not unfair is am i missing it
2: That's right. That's right. So we we typically distinguish between empire, which is really just kind of country A extending itself over territory B by force, sometimes for security reasons or economic reasons. It's not really a view of your civilization being superior. But colonialism, as it evolved in the modern era, was precisely a view that some civilizations are better than others. And we know that some civilizations are better than others because people in those other civilizations do everything they can to escape from their civilization and live closer to or in or as part of the superior civilization. I mean, that's just human history. If you can't accept that, then you should go back to playing with Plato and and doing finger paintings because that's just the reality of human history. So, colonialism, yes, was was uh, a view that said, look, parts of the world are ungoverned or badly governed, uh they would benefit from a superior civilization, in this case, uh liberal European states which were by far the most advanced, human rights abiding, minority respecting, women supporting, environmentally conscious, accountable <laughs> governments the world had ever seen. Right? Yeah. And the reason they they European colonialism spread is not because of the gun or because of force, but because it was welcomed by colonized peoples who knew very well this was a better way to live. This offered an opportunity that they would never have had had it not shown up.
1: Uh, So uh, again, Professor Bruce Gilley is our guest. Uh, His book is The Case for Colonialism, uh, available everywhere books are sold and comes from comes to you from New English Review Press. Um, He teaches over at Portland State University and is uh, on the board of the National Association of Scholars, a great group. Um, So a couple of things now. Um, The word has taken on this negative connotation. Is there a a modern uh, understanding? Again, if we can say, hey, look, colonialism always existed. It was a sort of way of life. Now we're in a different moment in history. Therefore, you can still believe that your ideas are the best. Your system of living together is the best. Your values are the best. It may mean that, though, colonialism is not active. Like, is it almost like are we in a period of inactive colonialism?
2: Yes and no. I mean, there there was a time after the end of the Cold War when actually co- colonialism revived in all but name. And this this was these ideas of these, uh, you know, these interventions in failing and failed states where, you know, a U.N. peacekeeping force or a, uh, a neighboring state would step in and, and set up the police force. I mean, the British went in and rebuilt the police force in Sierra Leone. Uh, they did the same thing in Ghana. We had uh, the World Bank taking control of the financial of the country of Chad because they had discovered offshore gas and were in no position to hold it themselves. So actually, there's a lot of experience in the post-Cold War era where either international organizations or well-governed states take over some of the functions of failing states, uh, and that is colonialism in all but name. We just don't use it because the C word, as I said, has become kind of impolite in polite society. Uh, But but it's there and the model is there. And there's no reason why we shouldn't continue going down that road, because, you know, a lot of these failed states around the world have zero prospect of ever emerging as governed well-governed places. And that's why all their young people are trying to get in rubber rafts and go to Europe or walk in our southern border.
1: Uh, again, our guest uh, is uh, Professor Bruce Gilly at Portland State University. His book, which is uh, just out a few weeks, is "The Case for Colonialism." Um, insofar as the word has been made synonymous with uh, sort of racism, right? If, if, you know, you're uh, in the in the in the need to divide Americans. For, on the uh, the left's need to divide Americans, they say, you know, victims, the oppressed, or the oppressors. And I, I don't know if the the word oppressor got overused, but now they like to say, oh, colonial, you know, colonial colonial just Sorry, easy for me to say. Um, can you can you save the word or do you just need to save the idea and understand it? Because it's because I'm not sure I'd go out and call myself a colonizer. I mean, I but I get your point. It's almost like if you're confident, you would sort of step into it. Can you step into it? I mean, you can in academia, but can can in the pub, in the public discourse, does it work?
2: Well, I guess the question is, if if you're saying decolonize, what are you advocating? What 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 do you see as the end goal? If you say let's decolonize and the end goal is we want to be a self-governing liberal democratic state with equality and uh, property rights and equal opportunity. That's, that's fine. But that was always the colonial project itself. I mean, very early on, mid-19th century, the colonial powers are talking about moves to self-government, need to educate, need to create public health and infrastructure, accountable governments, human rights, courts of law, the rule of law. I mean, this was this was part of the great, what I call the great anti-racist agenda of colonialism, because Mm -hmm. it assumed that everyone had the potential to be self-governing, well-governed people in a liberal democratic state. That was the great anti-racist project at the center of European colonialism. Now, if your plan to decolonize is to say, oh, well, you know, human rights is just for white people. You know, brown people need to be bossed around by a big man or, you know, South Asians need to to be put back in their caste system with upper caste Hindus ruling everything. Well, that is racism to me. So if what you mean by decolonization is getting rid of the Western liberal heritage, then you're the racist in my view.
1: It's a, um, it's an, it, it's an interesting problem right now. Um, you're at Portland State. I don't think I know that Portland State has a reputation for being particularly, um, left or right, but I mean, it's a, a state university in academia now across the, the spectrum. You know, I, I was looking, I think your credentials, you've been at some of the biggest, you've been educated at some of the top universities, top uh, places and, and now, uh, your board membership on the, on the, uh, association of scholars. I mean, is it, are things getting better? Uh, had the woke, the woke stuff and all this stuff peaked and we're coming through, or are we on a, a, a downward slide?
2: It's a great question. I, I do think that there has been a peak week and you know, a peak woke has, has occurred. And, and there's now a, a little bit of a, of a pushback, at least in terms of the most egregious forms of cancel culture on campus. The problem is that, The academy itself and higher education itself is now exclusively left-wing. It's not that conservatives are outnumbered or that they've declined. They've disappeared. So Mm. higher education as a whole is just a left-wing, radical, social justice project. So you can say we have free speech. Yeah, you have free speech because there's no dissenting views. It's pretty easy to have free speech when everyone's saying the same thing. That's the problem we're left with here. So. Uh, we've we kind of solved One of the symptoms But we haven't solved the causes
1: Yeah well uh, Professor Bruce Gilly, Thank you for uh, coming on We're out of time already The case for colonialism Just out a few weeks You can find it anywhere Books are sold And uh, it is New English Review Press Who's put it out He of course is a Professor I mentioned Of political science At Portland State University As well as a member Of the board Of the National Association Of Scholars Which is an important uh, group uh, Pushing back and, and being thoughtful So we've got to take a break Though we're up against the stop It's Ed Martin here On the Pro America Report I'll put all that up On social media And we'll be right back Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, very interesting uh, to catch up with our next guest. We talked with her a few weeks, uh, well, maybe, maybe more than that now. Time flies. Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith. She's retired uh, from law enforcement, but she's serving as the spokesman of the National Police Association. If you go to nationalpolice.org, you can see their work and what they're doing. Uh, very helpful. You can subscribe to their uh, email list and uh, where they are. Educating supporters of law enforcement standing against anti-police rhetoric is a tagline on the front page. Welcome back, Sergeant. How are you?
3: Hey, I'm great. Thanks so much for, uh, well, For having me. Well, it has not, been such a busy time.
1: It is. You're nice. You're great to be out here as a voice, uh, coming out of law enforcement yourself and then working. Um, the news we were reacting off of is the, uh, I think it was the New York Post, um, had this story that New York City has is going to cancel the next five police academy classes. Um, and the fourth highest number of co- cops have retired from NYPD. Um, you know what's going on here? I mean, when why isn't this a front page story across the country? I mean, are we I was just given up on New York.
3: Well, and it seems like it, doesn't it? Because yeah. you know the the New York City Police Department is the largest police department in this country, but the problem that they have in New York is um, a couple of things. One, I mean, for the last three and a half years, they have been absolutely bleeding. Police officers, they have had record numbers of retirements and resignations. And now with, uh, the, uh, migrant crisis created by Eric Adams insistence that, uh, he, the New York be a, uh, a sanctuary, sanctuary city. city yeah. You know, they're having to defer, uh, you know, to defer, uh, divert funds. From things like the police budget, and they're having to uh, cancel academy classes. They're also having a hard time getting enough qualified people, um, to apply. You know, they had a really terrific commissioner in, uh, uh, Commissioner Keyshawn uh, Sewells, and she got into it with Eric Adams. They really didn't see eye to eye because, um, Commissioner Sewells, was a very kind of a no-nonsense pro cop kind of commissioner mm-hmm. and uh, and she decided to uh to resign and that I think that's left a big leadership hole in the NYPD uh
1: again we're uh, we're, uh, we're talking about uh, with Sergeant uh, Betsy Smith retired uh, about what's happening in law enforcement again nationalpolice.org is the website of the organization that she's a spokesman for right now um again educating about law enforcement and uh, standing against anti police rhetoric um I I have a quick anecdotal story. A friend of mine is a, is a uh, retired cop in a medium-sized municipality in, in northern New Jersey and he was describing that usually when they go out it's it's kind of a a soft job. It's a nice job. It's a nice life. Go out for a, a vacancy, they'll have 150 applicants. He said they have 12 mm-hmm. because and and you know, he said, "Why?" And he said, "Nobody wants to deal with this uh deal with this uh, rhetoric." I hate to say it, uh sergeant but, you know, defund the police. You don't actually have to defund them if you can make it so no one wants to do the job.
3: You know, you just hit the nail on the head when you vilify yeah. a profession, when you convince young people when you convince communities of color when you com- convince voters that somehow the american law enforcement officer is the root of all evil then you don't have to defund them because nobody's going to want to take that job and that is what is happening uh you know as nypd is tr- they're trying to replace three thousand uniformed officers who have retired or quit since 2019? That is a huge gap in personnel. And what what do those uniform cops do? They answer 911 calls. Right, right. You know,
1: it, it seems to me. So Eric Adams, I, I thought, was positioning himself to be um, different than some of these Democrats. He was going to try to 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 be. I mean, he was himself law enforcement. Um, and, and I, it looked like after he resisted some of the, the Biden policies that he was sort of attacked or, you know, they, they, they drug up, uh, they, they, they brought forth some woman that was 30 years ago, uh, allegations and all. But you from the standpoint of y- your view uh, again, Sergeant Smith, the spokesman for the National Police Association, it. Is he doing better than most mayors? Is he doing worse? Is he is he I I, I hear you when you say his sanctuary city status is ridiculous. They they should stop that and things would change. It feels almost like he can't get that stopped. And he's doing the one thing that's almost like a protest. I mean, it's not going to help the city. It's going to lead to death and violence. But uh, what else can he do?
3: Well, he tried to run on a bit of a law and order platform when he ran, and he ran as a a former cop. But then when he got elected... He went back to the far left and, and quite frankly, Eric Adams was not, uh, the best police officer, uh, that the NYPD ever had. He wasn't very popular with his peers. He wasn't very popular as a, a supervisor and manager. And in fact, he's on, uh, video saying some pretty racist things about how he wanted to take on white crackers and things like that when he was with the NYPD. And he, unfortunately when he got elected, embraced this sanctuary city status and started taking in all these migrants. And quite frankly, he really didn't manage that process very well. He did step back. And right when he was poised to go testify Before the legislature in Washington, D.C., all of a sudden he started getting investigated by federal authorities. And there is some talk of corruption in his campaign. And now, again, there is this uh, sexual uh, harassment and sexual assault claim that is coming forward. And he's in a conundrum because. The left tells us we must believe all women. Remember, hashtag yeah, Me yeah, Too. Yeah, yeah, And uh, but he, but he, we're being told not to believe that woman. Not this, woman yeah, yeah, not,
1: this uh, not this one. It's a good point. <laughs> it's a good point. Um, uh, the um. So uh, again, uh, we're we're speaking with uh, Sergeant Betsy Brander Smith, retired law enforcement herself, and is now the spokesman for the National Police Association. Let me go to the th- sort of third rail of this whole story. Um, you know, across this country, we still have people who are um, who are willing to uh, to get out there and to talk uh, as if George Floyd was a hero. And we have the situation where Derek Chauvin is stabbed in in prison where he is. I I, you know, it's one thing to say that people don't like you when you're a cop in some parts of the city or county or something. It's another thing to watch this uh, happen. I mean, it's it seems to me it's a it's a sort of existential crisis for the for our republic if we can't get this right
3: well what's coming out now and i live in tucson arizona where eric chauvin was in a medium security federal prison and was indeed stabbed by whom we don't know and he remains in the hospital but a couple of things are coming out there's a lawsuit by a prosecutor from the hennepin county prosecutor's office a former prosecutor and in her sexual harassment lawsuit, she did a deposition where she talks about uh, the George Floyd autopsy. And she talks about how Dr. Baker, who performed the initial autopsy, came to her and expressed concern that the results of the autopsy were not matching the public narrative that George Floyd was murdered by Officer Derek Chauvin and three other police officers. You also have. The new documentary called The Fall of Minneapolis done uh, by uh, Liz Collin, who is an outstanding journalist uh, from the city of Minneapolis. And this documentary features. Police officers from the city of Minneapolis, uh, the autopsy uh, body cam that was never shown at trial. So all of this is coming into play as we go into a, an election year where I believe that the political left feels like they need to continue to vilify law enforcement so that people continue to vote for the far left anti cop anti-crime victim, pro-criminal policies that we now have in the United States. It's going to be a very interesting time for all of us to watch.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, Sergeant Betsy Brandner-Smith, thank you for uh, retired sergeant law enforcement. Thank you for being out there and having your voice, uh, uh, one of the voices weighing in. Uh, she's a spokesman for the National Police Association, nationalpolice.org. There's a lot of uh, there over there on that website to learn and understand what's going on and be more informed thank you for the time sergeant i appreciate it
3: thanks for having me
1: you're very welcome we will put a links up on social media very helpful and uh, there's a lot there all right we'll take a break we'll be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report back in the morning
0: This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin.
1: Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky has led the fight against forcing Americans to fund NATO's war to expand its membership to include Ukraine. Congress has already sent one hundred and thirteen billion dollars of our hard earned American taxpayer funds to Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky without accountability of where it ultimately went. Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, which has a large Ukrainian constituency, opposes pouring more American money into the war there. Vance is quoted as saying five years from now, you're going to find a lot of people have gotten rich from this. Yet it isn't just American statesmen like Senators Paul and Vance who are standing up to the demands for more money to fuel Ukraine's conflict. Voters in Slovakia elected the party that promised to end military support for the regime in Ukraine. The election winners also vowed to oppose Ukraine joining NATO, which is what this war is all about. Similarly, elections in Poland prompted politicians there to promise an end to Poland's involvement in the conflict. The Polish prime minister shrewdly announced we are no longer transferring weapons to Ukraine because we are now arming Poland. Yet these global efforts to disassociate with the Ukrainian conflict are not being heeded by the war hungry globalists on Capitol Hill. Senate leadership tried to get Ukraine jammed into the CR and they just got bucked, celebrated Josh Hawley, Republican of Missouri, talking about the continuing resolution enacted in September. Yet the next day, President Joe Biden announced that he expects more funding of this NATO war in Ukraine to pass in a separate vote, which no Republican Speaker of the House should schedule. Americans should not be entering conflicts unless it is to protect America. We have no business wresting power from one corrupt regime only to pass it along to another halfway around the globe. The fact of the matter is that both grassroots Americans and the grassroots of other nations are pushing back against the presumption of the globalists that every war must be turned into a world war. Globalists need to start taking the hint.
0: This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. As leader of the free world, America has a responsibility to stay strong in economics, industry, morality, and military capability, never hesitating to say America first. At phyllisschlafly.com, you'll see why the best foreign policy begins with a strong America. Join the conversation at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report.
4: hey welcome back to the pro america report this is not ed martin <laughs> this is ryan height had to step into the booth here real quick to uh fill in for ed this last segment ed had to jet but uh we i had something i wanted to cover here we have a news story that i think is worthy of a wrap-up but um before we get there i'll, I'll remind you real quick go to proamericareport.com you can also go to com. there you will find the podcast the standalone segments uh, all the notes and links and resources and everything else that we talk about head on over there most importantly you can sign up for the wink email, the daily email that comes into your inbox early every morning with just a little bit of information that will help you. So uh, head on over there, ProAmericaReport.com, and you can take care of that now. But uh, let me get on to this here real quick. We have a very interesting development that's happened over the weekend. I know I talked um, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks, something like that. Uh, we spoke about the very interesting development that has come up in uh, Texas. A federal judge striking down the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol tobacco, firearms, and explosives, uh, the ATF's proposed ban on braces for AR-style pistols. Now, without getting too much into the weeds, what was going on here, really, is the ATF, just like so many other federal agencies, is attempting to legislate, to law make by rules and by, what should we say, crafting and massaging the words and definitions of things so that, essentially, they can really radically transport the actual words Congress has passed in legislation surrounding gun ownership. The ATF is wanting to go beyond anything that is even remotely inside their purview. And finally, successfully, uh, they've been called on it. It happened with the 80% receiver uh, rule uh, of last year, uh, which, again, if you're not familiar there, um, being able to manufacture firearms at home has always been legal in America. It is still legal in America, despite an attempt there. These braces, which is a different attachment you can put on a pistol, not a rifle, but it doesn't turn it into one of their short-barreled rifles, so-called, that they want registered, according to the uh, uh, NFA, the National Firearms Act, passed back in the 30s. Uh, all these different things, they decide, hey, we got this uh, this thing floating around out there in um, in commercial industry, and, and we don't want people buying it. We don't like that they have it. So we're going to decide, the ATF says, to reinterpret this rule and put out an opinion here and then this and that there, and suddenly make it illegal. This now fits the definition over here, but we had to tweak the definition, a- and courts have said, and all the way up to the Supreme Court in the Bruin case, there has been a, a great round of decisions lately that have said, wait a minute, pause. You can't, and I- I actually, I say the Bruin decision, the West Virginia VEPA decision of 2022, I think was even more key in this, because it told executive agencies, which are... Enforcement agencies They do not make the law They enforce the law And you have a little bit Of wriggle room We have to clarify Exactly what this Does or doesn't look like But you don't get to Just make up new law That that is what the court Has come down and said Hold on, whoa, whoa You cannot just Radically change The definition of something That Congress established Congress definitionally Declared this to be This kind of firearm And that to be That kind of firearm And all of the different things And now because you Don't like something In this exact Executive agency full of unelected bureaucrats, you can't just go and make up new rules that radically change the actual laws, the actual definitions in legal code on the books. So, that has happened again and it is a good thing a federal judge uh, over in west virginia has struck down uh, the ban on handgun sales to individuals uh, b- between ages 18 and 20 if you're not familiar b- basic uh, set down here it, you have to be 18 uh, or older to purchase a rifle or a shotgun a long gun or you have to be 21 and older to purchase a handgun uh, a, and that's a that's a federal thing that has been around for for some time states also do the same thing it's it's just generally that, that across the board is the rule. Well, someone challenged that, two uh, to, uh, individuals, I think two 20-year-olds, uh, or maybe I have their age in, incorrectly, uh, but uh, two people challenged that, and it went all the way up to a federal judge who has said, nope, uh, that's not okay, and he struck down the federal ban on handgun sales to 18- to 20-year-olds, and this is an incredibly good thing, because it is yet again, it really has nothing to do with handgun sales, although th- this was the judge's point was that, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've made a mess out of this Handguns are 18 to 20 year olds Are allowed to own And possess handguns But they're not allowed to Purchase handguns They're otherwise banned From Pro uh, from procuring the Thing they're allowed to possess that makes No sense and and the government Actually argued back well it's not like there's not a Workaround their parents can't it's not like their parents Can't just go buy it for them No, hold on (laughs) I think I see that and I think Immediately wait a minute aren't we not supposed to have Straw purchases where you buy a gun for Someone else who's not allowed to walk in and buy it for themselves Make up your mind ATF what is it So they, they were challenged on This and their argument just completely fell Apart essentially what they tried to do was argue That well 18 19 and 20-year-olds aren't adults, but 21-year-olds are. So that's how we should distinguish this. And the judge said, nope, 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 no way. That is not the case. He said the defendants have not presented any evidence of age-based restrictions on the purchase or sale of firearms from before or at the founding or during the early republic. They've likewise failed to offer evidence of similar regulation between then and 1791 or in any relevant time frame thereafter. Boom. Done. Case closed. Uh, Now I say case closed. You can imagine that the Department of Justice will be throwing an incredible amount of resources at this. Obviously, this just happened at the very end of last week, so there's still, I am sure, appeals and litigation coming on this, but it's great. And and the judge quoted Bruin. He also went through several other things. What is happening is we are building a library of new Uh, judicial precedent to back up decisions like New York v. Bruin which specifically addressed firearms and West Virginia EPA which specifically addressed overreaching federal agencies that tried to make law instead of enforce the law. This is great. We are building a fantastic library of precedent. It's good and I hope it continues. There's a little something a nugget that you need to know. Kind of has to do with the Second Amendment and with the administrative state both. So go and look it up. See a little bit more. Uh, Educate yourself and thank you for being here with us today to be educated. We are so grateful for you. Uh, thank you to Ed for hosting the show, to my co-producer, Mason, for helping me keep everything on track. Thank you to you for listening and participating. We will be back tomorrow on another edition of the Pro America Report. Go to ProAmericaReport.com in the meantime, and we will see you back here tomorrow. Have a good day.